Good morning. How's everybody? My name's Alan, by the way. If, if you're new here, I'm one of the elders. Usually I get the privilege of leading worship, but occasionally I, uh, I get the privilege to, to preach. Okay, so into this morning's lesson. Uh, we've just finished up a, a lesson series on the Holy Spirit called Empowered. Before we did that lesson series, we did a series of lessons on the resurrection. And we talked about the effect that the resurrection had. In both of those lessons, we were trying to address a need that we think that we see in this congregation. In this congregation, we talked about the resurrection a little, but not nearly like we saw it being talked about in the New Testament. And not a lot of us were really familiar with what effect the resurrection should be having on us. So we spent about six weeks talking about that. I thought it was really good and it was challenging. But it led us naturally into talking about the Holy Spirit and his power. And a lot of us, what we found is we talk about the, the, the Holy Spirit here and there, but we really didn't understand him or spend much time talking about him. And yet when we read about him in the Bible, in the New Testament, they talked about the Holy Spirit all the time. And they talked about his power and how he works through us. The only power that we work with is through the Holy Spirit. So that got me to thinking as we were moving out of that series into where we should go next and what does this church need to talk about. And my heart went to the book of Ephesians. So how many of you guys have read or studied, let me say that, how many of you have studied the book of Ephesians in the past? Awesome, a couple of you. Uh, how many of you have read the book of Ephesians? More? How many of you have heard of the book of Ephesians? Ha <laughs> ha, great. I think we finally got every hand to go up. Well, one of the misnomers is it's not a book. It's not a book. Have you ever read somebody else's mail? Yeah, it's against the law. Well, not in this case. This is a letter. The, the book of Ephesians, we call it the book of Ephesians, but it's one of four letters that Paul wrote from prison the first time that he was in prison. Paul was about my age whenever he wrote this book, and he was in Rome doing time. We know that he eventually got out, but they arrested him again later on, but he wrote four letters to different churches while he was in there. There was Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and a really unique one, the only one we have that was written to an individual and not a congregation, that's Philemon. So they call these letters the prison epistles. Epistle is just a word for letter. In looking at this letter, I feel like, see, the reason why I want to talk about this is because Ephesians really focuses in on our family relationship. You see, Paul uses a phrase over and over and over again in this letter. He uses the phrase, in him, or in Christ. And he keeps coming back and he carries this thought all throughout the letter. It's not the only time that he talks this way, but he really seems to nail this a lot. And the implication is, see, in him, we're in his family. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to have a life in the family of God? And Paul writes this letter. Now, if you've studied Ephesians, you'll realize that scholars talk about how high and lofty Paul writes in this letter. He talks about some incredibly deep and rich spiritual truths. Don't let that scare you. Obviously, there's, uh, there's things that can be misunderstood, but these rich truths, he always ties them into some very, very practical applications, some very, very usable stuff. Now, he wasn't able to write this way in all of his letters. 
In fact, in Corinth, when he writes 1 Corinthians, in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, he said, listen, I've got to give you guys milk, not meat. And in Ephesians, he writes some meat. He gives them some meat. What's the difference between the crowd in Ephesus and the crowd in Corinth? It wasn't that they were smarter or better educated in Ephesus. The difference Paul cites in 1 Corinthians, he says, I had to give you milk because you're worldly. What does he say about the Ephesians? Right at the beginning he says, I couldn't wait to write this to you guys because I've heard about your faith and I've heard about your love. Some of the concepts that are in Ephesians, don't let it scare you off. It would be very hard for you to understand and to take this and to, and to put it into practice if you're worldly. But the good thing about that is, being spiritual versus worldly is a choice. Nobody is locked out of these deep, rich spiritual truths based on their education. Based on any of that stuff, it's really just based on whether or not we're going to be worldly or we're going to be spiritual. And Paul is talking to a spiritual crowd in this letter. And he shares some of the greatest thoughts and practical. It's not just walking away from this letter with a bunch of answers to difficult Bible questions. It's walking away with tools. I was talking with Gary the other day and I was pitching the idea of going through Ephesians on Sunday morning. And there are just so many good things to talk about. Almost every verse has got something you could drill down on and talk about and, and, and pull out rich. I compared it to him like trying to take you guys into this big vault. If we were to walk into a big vault and it's full of all these precious jewels and these powerful tools, that's a little bit like the challenge of trying to walk through Ephesians. But here's the thing. If you're in him, then you're in the family of God and you own everything that's in this vault. It's all yours. All these precious gems, all these powerful tools. Now, I have a love-hate relationship with preaching. I never feel like I can do a good enough job. And part of the reason is because there's a, I want to talk about everything. Everything that I can see, I want to talk about all of it. And this format just doesn't allow us to do that. So in this sermon series, as we talk about your life in the family of God, as we look at this letter that Paul wrote from prison all those years ago, I'm only going to be able to show you a couple of things that are in there. And Gary's going to follow up behind me, and he's going to show you a couple more. What I'd like for you guys to do is accept this challenge. I would like for you to read through the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, while we're going through this series. It'll probably take us about six weeks. But read it again and get really familiar with Paul's logic, with his arguments and the things that he says. I think it'll really help you to understand what the, the few things that we can pull out in this format and show you. Okay, so having said all of that, Let's dig into this. Let's look right here at the very beginning, chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. Paul starts off this letter, and he tells us about the prayer that he has for these Christians. And he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. By the way, the song we sang for communion, Open the Eyes of My Heart, I think is coming from this same thought. Paul wants the hearts to be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us to believe that, who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him 
at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that's invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over the church, over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You see what I mean? How many things are there to be talked about? Every verse has got multiple targets of opportunity for a a Bible nut to talk about. So I'm going to have to work to try and not get too distracted and stay on focus. Paul prays that their eyes would be enlightened. The eyes of their heart would be enlightened about three things. You'll see them in verse 18 and 19. The first one is the hope. He wants us to be enlightened about the hope to which we were called. Now, I've asked this question in several places, and I think I know how the answer here. If I asked you, what is the Christian hope that is presented in Scripture, could you tell me? Could you maybe even quote a verse or point me to a verse? What is our Christian hope? Exactly. Next thing he says that he wants us to be enlightened about is about the riches of our inheritance. How many of you guys can tell us what our, what our inheritance really is from Scripture and why it's rich, why it's such a rich thing? Yeah. Third thing he wants us to be enlightened about is the great power available to us. Now, we should be, as a crowd, we should be just a little bit closer to being able to answer this one because we spent six weeks talking about that power, right? Why do you think Paul wants us to have our hearts enlightened? This power is the one that we're going to talk about a little bit today. We're going to talk a little bit about the practical application of it. Because Paul says specifically it was this power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God. Paul wants all Christians, he intended for this letter to be read by a lot of people. I doubt that he had it in his mind. He could have prob- I doubt that he would have thought that 2,000 years later we'd be talking about a letter that he was writing to these churches in Asia Minor. But here we are, and the message is still true for us. And I think his prayer is still good for us. Why is it necessary that you be enlightened about these three things? Well, let me tell you a story to see if it helps. I don't know if this story is true. It could be. Major city, there's a guy and he's homeless. He's begging every day of his life. He doesn't know if the next meal is going to come. He doesn't know if he's going to have shelter. Every day is a struggle. Dirt poor. And as you can imagine, he didn't survive long. And he died. And so when the authorities are dealing with his body, one of the natural things for you to do in a situation like that is to try and see if there's any next to kin. See if there's anybody that would claim the body. Does this man have any family? And as they did that search, you know what they found? Yes, he did. In fact, one of his relatives had died a few years back and had given him an inheritance of like a billion dollars. This guy actually had millions of dollars that were his. So when he died, was he rich or was he poor? You see where I'm going with this? See, the truth is you can be rich and powerful and not know it and live as though you're weak and poor. I think that's why Paul wants us 
to have our hearts enlightened. I just asked you what he would have considered very three very simple questions to answer. In fact, those three things that he points out at the beginning of his prayer, those answers are littered all throughout the New Testament. Our first century brothers and sisters were really excited about this. They were really familiar with it. They held on to it like they had just walked into that big vault that I told you about and someone said, this is yours. And they said, really, this is mine? I can have this? Yeah, let me show you how to use it. That's still the same challenge in front of us as we come into this letter today is to realize that being members in the family of God, we have access to all these different truths and all these jewels. But you can choose to stay unenlightened you can choose to stay worldly and not grab a hold of these spiritual truths, but you'd live a life that's more like that guy that was homeless. Why would we choose to do that? So if you're up for the challenge, let's look a little bit further. Paul says that this great power had seated Jesus at the right hand of God. What in the world does he mean that Jesus is seated at God's right hand? It means that it's a position of honor and power. At God's right hand is a position of both honor and power. No doubt Paul, who was very fluent in the Old Testament, was familiar with Psalms 110. In verse 1 of Psalms 110 it says this, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. So what does it mean that he's sitting at God's right hand? Jesus is literally at, right, at God's right hand, seated. It's a position of honor. It's a position of power. And it also means that Jesus has nothing left to prove. What did he say from the cross? It's finished. Jesus proved everything that he needed to prove while he was here on this earth. And now God has seated him at his right hand in a position of power and honor, and he's been given the power to rule. Which leads us to what I really want to focus on today, that being seated is a position of rest, but not inactivity. Think about it. Wherever you sit... That's a, that's a time to, re, to relax, right? To rest. But whenever I talk about rest, how many of you think of inactivity? Dave, on your vacation, did you rest? <laughs> Probably not because of all the activity. The idea is, is that whenever you go on vacation, you get free of the things that you have to do, and you get to do the things that you want to do, right? And most of us think that's a good way to get rested. And I wouldn't argue with it. I think it probably is a good way to be rested. But typically when we think about sitting and resting, we don't think about being active. And yet wherever Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, is Jesus inactive? Jesus is not inactive. He's ruling. And yet he's seated. And he's resting. But he's not inactive. So, having established that... Let's look what he says, just a, what Paul says just a couple of verses down in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. Paul says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. 
what in the world does Paul mean when he says that we've been seated with Christ? Because I'm looking at you, and this doesn't look like the throne of God off to our left. What does Paul say? I mean, what's, he, what's he trying to get across? What does it mean that you've been seated with Christ at the right hand of God? Here's one of the things about in him. Paul uses that phrase over and over and over in his writing, especially in this particular letter. The truth about being in him means that whatever is true of Jesus is true of you if you're in him. Being in him, whatever is true of Jesus is now true of us. I'll illustrate it this way. I have here a standard ordinary wallet. Now, if I took my paycheck and I put it in my wallet and I put it in my back pocket, where is my paycheck? It's in my back pocket. Star. Now, if I take it and I toss it to Alex. Good catch, Alex. Now, where is my paycheck? It's in Alex's back pocket. Okay, because I saw him just put it in there. Now, what if Alex leaves here, goes to Lambert Airport, and takes a trip to Taiwan? Where's my paycheck? It's in Taiwan. Wherever Paul talks about you being in Christ, in him, it means the same thing. Whatever's true of Jesus is true of you, if you're in him. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you haven't been born again, then you can't say this. This precious jewel, which you're going to find out, I hope, you're going to find out is a precious tool, is not for you yet. But just like being spiritual or worldly is a choice, being in him or not in him is also a choice. If you haven't made that choice, you don't have to leave this building without becoming part of him and being in him. We could take care of that today. Keep that in mind. But for the rest of you, I'm going to talk to you because you are in him. So if being in him means that whatever's true of Jesus is true of us, and Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, then where are you? At the right hand of God, great. If Jesus has nothing left to prove, and you're in him, do you have anything left to prove? No. If Jesus, and by the way, man, it's easy to get that answer right when we're talking about it, but do you really believe that? Most of us spend most of our time trying to win a battle that's already been won. And we wear ourselves out trying to prove things that Jesus already proved. If Jesus has been given power to rule and you're in him, do you have that same power? Absolutely. I'm glad. Glad someone shouted it out. Well, here's another one of those targets of opportunity. I would love to spend more time talking about what it means to rule with Christ and to reign with him. I'm not going to get a chance to go into that very deeply today. But if those things are true of Jesus and we just decided that they were, then they're true of you too. Because you're seated in him. See, the taking hold of your life in the family of God doesn't start with a big do. It starts with a big done. And we reverse it, don't we? We all, how many of us are burdened with what I call the performance trap? 
where we're constantly trying to be good enough. And it's like we give ourselves permission to feel good based on how I perform. And if I'm not performing well, I sometimes even question if I'm really a Christian. Does that sound like being seated in the throne of the right hand of God? That kind of an attitude? It doesn't start with what you do. It starts with something that's already done. In fact, the gospel means good news. The original Greek word is euangelion. It was a military word. Whenever there was a battle and it was won, they would send runners back to town to tell the good news, the euangelion. We won. There's a difference between good news and good advice. News is telling of something that's already happened. Jesus said it's finished. And he was seated at the right hand of God. He's not inactive, but he's resting. He's resting in what has already been done. And Paul says that if you're in him, then you're seated there too. Which means we can rest in something that's already been done. Your life in the family of God doesn't start with a big do. It starts with a big done. In fact, our first century brothers and sisters were so excited about telling the gospel, they couldn't wait. Even when persecution came, because they were talking about the gospel, it wouldn't shut them up, it wouldn't shut them down, because they were excited about something that was already done. Now think about us. Are we excited about telling the gospel? From where I'm sitting, I can't say that that answer is yes. And I think a big reason for that is because we've somehow taken it from the good news about what Jesus did and what God is doing, and we've turned it into, instead of the good news, we've turned it into the good advice. It's like we approach people, or we don't approach people, because we think what we've got to tell them is if you do this and you do that and you do the other, then you'll get what God wants. Sometimes we even say, God will give you what you want. And so we're bashful about telling the good news. That's not where we start. We start with the good news of what God's already done. Resting in Jesus is the only way for us to actually become productive members of God's family. See, we aren't just grafted in and adopted so God can say, Oh, look at that one. That one's mine. What does he do? Nothing. I just like the way he looks. That's not what being in the family of God is all about. God intends for us to be productive. When you sit in a chair and rest, what do you have to do? I mean, all of you guys are sitting in chairs. In order for you to actually sit and rest in that chair, don't you have to trust the chair? This is sort of simple, right? Here's, here's the truth. These deep theological topics are not impossible to understand and they're very very practical Jesus being seated at the right hand of God and all that this implies and us being seated in him that's a deep theological idea but it's very very practical for you to sit in that chair you had to commit your whole weight to the chair anybody here want to try to sit in your chair through the duration of the rest of the sermon and not trust it with your weight would that be a way to rest no, it's not. And it's not a way to rest in Christ either. You have to commit your whole weight to a chair and trust it. You have to commit your whole weight to Jesus and rest everything on Him. What's everything? Well, only everything is everything. 
your burdens, your future, everything. You rest it all on Jesus. How many of you guys have got something that bothers you, maybe even this morning a concern, and you pray to God and you ask Him to take care of it, and then you still worry and fuss and fret? Is that an example of trusting Him and giving Him the weight? And that's the normal way we pray, isn't it? Jesus has got something else in mind for us. We won't really take hold of our place in God's family until we learn how to sit down. Am I making that point clear enough? See, just like that guy in the street, that homeless guy. You have been seated in Christ. And this means something really rich and deep and cool and, and it's powerful. But if you're unenlightened about it, if you don't get your hands around this, you'll live like a person who has to work for their salvation. And you'll constantly struggle with not feeling good enough. And it will cripple your ability to be productive in the kingdom of God. There's a lot at stake on this. So here, that leads us to this question. How can I learn to rest in Christ? We've established that it's true. We've walked into the vault and we've seen the jewel. We've seen that it's not just a jewel, but it's a tool. And we know that it's ours. How do I use it? How do I use it? Well, I'm going to try to walk you through a couple of things here to make this make sense. I'm going to start you off in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever wrote Hebrews said this. He said, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. We're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. Let's lay down our weight and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured even the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Paul didn't, he's not the only one who understands this concept that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's calling on us to fix our eyes on Jesus who's seated there. And he wants us to get rid of every burden and sin that holds us back. The word for burden there in the Greek is the Greek word agkos, and it describes a burden or something so heavy, so cumbersome, that it keeps a runner from running the race the way that he should. Anybody here track and field fans? If Gary was here, I know he'd know exactly about it. Track and field, all right. Whenever people run a race, do you see them wearing galoshes? How about backpacks? Maybe carry furniture. No. In fact, in the original Greek games, the runners ran nude. And today, if you watch the Olympics, well, they're wearing clothes, but it ain't that far from nude. There's actually people who make a lot of money figuring how to reduce the weight of these athletes who want to run the race the best that they possibly can. This is the image that the, that the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to us. We've got this wonderful race. He wants us to lay down our burdens so that we can run the way that we're supposed to run. How many of you guys are weighed down by something this morning? 
You got a burden? Does it keep you from running the way you should? See, if you're seated in Christ, then you can let go of that burden. What is it that weighs you down? I want to show you something else that I know you guys are familiar with this verse. It's in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus said this. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. Some of you guys just told me that he's talking to you. Whenever I asked if you had something weighing you down this morning, you put your hand up or you nodded your head. He's talking to you. And he says, come to him. He says, I will give you rest. That's what we've been talking about, right? Remember, rest isn't inactivity. Jesus wants to take your burden and get you to rest. But it's not so that you can be inactive. He goes on to say, take my yoke upon you. What's a yoke? It's not that part of the egg that everybody likes. If you're from an old farming culture, like Jesus, they would have understood this. It's like a collar, right? And what do they use that for? It's how they harness the power of an animal and how they direct it to get it to do the job. Folks, Jesus didn't invite you into his kingdom and make you a part of his family in order for you to do nothing. He has a yoke for you. He has a job. If you want to be productive in the family of God, you're going to have to come to grips with this. You're supposed to be productive in the family of God. And he says, let me teach you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle of heart. And you will find rest for your souls. See, rest isn't the same thing as being inactive, is it? And yet how many of us suffer from chronic fatigue? Spiritual fatigue. All these different burdens that weigh us down. And yet Jesus is outlandishly saying, I can take all that. And I can give you real rest. And he says, for my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Again, Jesus intends to give you a burden. It may not be the burden that you're carrying this morning. So I've got this graphic in your notes, and I hope to make this make sense. If you'll notice, there are two circles. There's a larger white one, and then inside it, you'll see kind of a blue one there. This represents all the different burdens. Remember, I asked you what's weighing you down. You're only going to fall into two categories. Everything that's a weight for you is going to fall into one of two categories. Things you can control and things you can't. Let's deal with that last one. Things you can't control. By the way, the graphic is intentional this way. There are always more things that will burden you that you can't control than things that you can. In your notes... I'd like for you, if you know what it is that burdens you, scribble it in that white circle. If you don't really want to be, if you want to kind of keep it a little secret, if you don't really want people to know what's on your mind, put an initial or a symbol or something and write it in there. It'll make sense why I'm asking you to do that in a little bit here. So what are some of the things that might go in that circle? Things that you can't control, but they really concern you and they're awake. How about your kids? Parents, do you have a burden for your kids? Can you always control them? No, you can't always control them. What about health? Does that worry you? 
Is that a burden? Yeah. Someone offered one of I said this, I said, well, yeah, but you can do something about your health. And I said, yeah, of course. You know, you, if you eat right and you exercise and you take all your vitamins, you can still get sick and die. In fact, the dying part will happen. There's only so much you can control. You can do your part, but you can't make yourself, by worrying about it, live longer or healthier. That's out of your control, isn't it? Politics. Does that get on your nerves? Are you concerned about where the country's going? Are you cons- I can't even afford to think about the country because I'm worried about our state. You know? <laughs> Best idea I've heard so far is to divide us up with productive states and go to 49 on the, on the flag. I don't know if I'd really support that as an amendment, but, you know, it kind of gets to the, <laughs> kind of gets to the point of it. There are some people that are just seriously, legitimately burdened about our, our, our financial situation and our politics. There are so many things. Here's a popular one. How many of you are frustrated with your spouse? They don't treat you the way that they should or the way you think that they should. They won't do... No elbowing. Because <laughs> I'll see it and then I'll call you out on it and you don't want that. <laughs> How many of us try to get somebody to treat us the way we think we ought to be treated? That can be a burden, right? In fact, that may be one of those things. You may have a, a crummy relationship that you just can't get to go right. And it frustrates you and it weighs you down. Maybe it's not just how they treat you. Maybe it's just that they refuse to do the right things. If you're in a relationship with someone who suffers from an addiction, that can be a terrible burden, can't it? The point that I'm going to try to make is universal. It doesn't really require to be one of those things. The point is you've all got burdens that will fit into this white circle, things that you cannot control. Some of you may not have yet come to the realization that you can't control these things. And so that may be the first thing that, you, that Jesus needs to teach you. He says, let me teach you. Maybe he needs to teach you what you can and can't control. But now let's look at this blue circle for a second. Burdens that you can control. By God's design, affirmed in the word of God, what is it that sits into that circle? You. You. The only thing in the universe that God can't control is you. Let's be real. He could. He chooses not to. He gave us this thing called free will. So as I understand it, the things that I'm supposed to control, that I actually can control, come down to just me, which breaks out into what I will think, what I will say, and what I will do. That's a much smaller list, isn't it? Okay, so here's how this diagram works, and I think this will bear out. I think you'll, you'll see the truth in this. How much energy do you have? Everybody's got a certain amount of energy that they have. And it's almost like a pie. You can slice it up. You can make a thousand slices, but they're all going to be just tiny little threads of, of pie. You can slice bigger slices. And in an average day, whenever things going well, it feels like you've got enough energy to focus on all the things that require your attention, right? So now, let's apply that thought to this diagram. 
By God's design, you're supposed to be focusing all of that energy where? In the blue dot. And it's only logical. It's the stuff that you can control that you're supposed to focus your energy on. But in truth, look at your list and the things that you put out in the white, in the area, and the things you can't control. How many of you are putting some energy and focus outside of the blue dot? A lot of heads nodding. You know what I'm talking about. So let's play it this way. You take a little of the energy that's supposed to be used by God's design to control you, and now you put it out here trying to control something you can't control. What happens to the size of the blue dot? Next slide, please. That's what happens. See, the reality is it's not just one thing that resists you out there and takes some of your energy. Husbands and wives should understand this. You get into an argument with your wife, and she resists you. So what do you do? I give more effort. If I just explain it well enough, then she'll agree with me and we'll get this right. And she'll be better for it. And she resists. I put some more energy. What's happening to my blue dot? Getting smaller. If she resists me long enough, and I keep putting my energy into trying to get her to agree with me, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to end up losing control of the one thing I was supposed to control. Me. And I will end up thinking something I was never supposed to think. I'll end up saying something I was never supposed to say, even maybe things I didn't want to think or say. And I guarantee you I'm going to end up doing something I'm not supposed to do. Maybe even things I never wanted to say, think, or do. Anybody else been there besides me? Okay, you're not being real honest. (laughs) Everybody knows what I'm talking about. But here's the reality. How many things did you put out there in that white circle? It wasn't just one, was it? It wasn't just one. And when you try to spend that focus, that energy that God gave you to focus on you on controlling yourself, when you spend that energy out there on things you can't control, you put a little bit of energy with this thing and that thing and this person and that person, you get to this point of losing control of yourself even faster. Does that life look like a life of rest to you? And we wonder sometimes why we're so worn out. And then we we couple that with this performance trap thing, and we think Christianity stinks. Life is just harder. Now I've got even more rules. And we just go into overdrive, and we spend all of our energy working on everything else but what we're supposed to. Now let's reverse it. Let's show the next slide. By God's design, you're supposed to focus your energy on his burden, the burden that he gave you. What is the burden that he gave each one of us? Well, that's going to get into what we're talking about next week. I'm only going to introduce, basically this lesson is to introduce next week. Paul talks about three things, three postures in the book of Ephesians that I want to try and talk about with us. The first one is sitting. That's what we're talking about today, which is about resting. Not being inactive, but resting. He also talks about walking. You will never learn how to walk in Christ until you first learn how to sit down and rest. 
that's what we're trying to uncover here. Lastly, he talks about standing. What's supposed to fit in that blue circle is your walk. You're walking Christ. And some of you guys are struggling so badly in this walk, and really the, the, it'll turn wherever you realize that it's about sitting down. It's about resting in what Jesus has already done rather than me working harder. Have, many, have you come to this point where you realize that sin and overcoming sin is not ever going to be done by working harder? Trying harder will fail you. I'm not suggesting giving up either. But learning how to rest in Him will teach you how to walk the way you're supposed to. And whenever you focus your energy where Jesus tells you to focus it, that area, that ability to control yourself will grow. I don't know if you can see it from your seat, but there is still some area for the burdens that concern us that we can't control. They will always be there to tempt us as targets for our energy and our focus. But when we learn to trust Jesus and rest in Him, we let Him take care of those. To sit, you have to put your whole weight in the chair, right? To be seated in Christ, you have to put your whole weight on Him. What does Jesus say here in Matthew 11? Isn't He suggesting that we trade? He says, those of you that are carrying these heavy burdens, I'll give you rest. First, let me teach you about them. Then you're going to find some rest for your souls. Because the burden I want to give you is light. Back up one slide. This is an out-of-control life. Do you get that? You're surrounded and overwhelmed by things you cannot control and they weigh you down and cripple you. This is a life of rest. Because you've got enough energy to take care of the things that you can control and you're focused on what you can control. And the only way you can do that is by trusting Jesus to take care of the stuff you can't. And the only one that he makes a promise to that he will do that are those that are in his family. Those that have submitted to his lordship. Those who have come into his kingdom and transferred from the dominion of darkness and been translated into the kingdom of light. This is Matthew 6.33. Most of us are familiar with that, aren't we? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And what? All these other things will be given to you as well. You get to choose. See, the difference between being worldly and spiritual is a choice. Between resting and being overwhelmed is a choice. And what I'm hoping to do, and this is what Paul's prayer was, is that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you understand the riches that you have in Christ. This is yours. Because you're in Him. Where's my wallet? <laughs> been right there with Him the whole time. Whatever's in my wallet's been right there with Alex. He didn't go to Taiwan after all. My paycheck isn't that big. He's not going to get past Wood River on what I make. <laughs> Your life has been buried with Christ. You're seated with Him. You are at the right hand of God. It is not a position of inactivity, it's a position of rest. To sit down and to rest in Jesus means learning how to let Him take your burdens.
And folks, I'm not kidding about the learning part any more than what I think Jesus was kidding where he said, let me teach you. Anybody ever have a powerful tool, but you weren't sure how to use it? I think of the first computer I ever owned. Yep, it'll do a lot of stuff. I'm not sure how to make it do it. <laughs> I've even bought power tools and forgot what I bought them for. And then later I look at them and go, what's that for? I don't even know how to... I, I see you plug it in, but I'm not sure what I would do with it once I did. There's a learning curve to this. According to Jesus, you're going to have to let him teach you how to let him take your burdens. The other thing he's... To sit down and rest in Jesus means learning how to take the burden that he gives you. And see, what I see so many of us struggling with is we want to handle our burdens and we don't much take the burden he gives us. Jesus wants us to walk a certain way, to perform a certain way in his family. You can't do it until you learn to sit and rest in him. And what a privilege it is. Next week, I hope you'll come back and we'll talk some more about what it means to spend and focus your energy in that blue dot. Things that you definitely can control. Things that God wants you to control. What it means to walk in a manner worthy of our Lord. Paul talks about it that way. He talks about walking in a manner worthy of our calling. And we'll learn something about how to sit to rest, not be inactive, and how to function in the family of God. That's all I've got for you this morning. Worship team, if you want to make your way up, what we're going to do is we're going to pray to kind of close this out. They're going to sing a couple songs, and they'll use that opportunity to pass a basket around. Now, the idea behind the basket is it gives us a chance, just a convenient time to collect uh, offerings, gifts of money for the financial support, pay the bills, keep the lights on, stuff like that. If you're a guest with us, it's not something that we're asking you to do. This is just a way of us taking care of in-house business. Of course, if you want to give money, that's great. In fact, if you want to give it to the Allen Hamlin Relief Fund, just keep adding zeros before the decimal. I would love it. I wouldn't tell you, no, that you couldn't give. I just want to tell you, we didn't try to get you here to take anything from you. We want to share with you what God's given to us. The prayer cards. I know some of you aren't yet comfortable about praying in our groups and praying with other people, but maybe you'd be comfortable enough to let a, a confidential team pray for your needs. Is there a burden that you're having a hard time letting go of and trusting Jesus? I would encourage you to put that on your communication card and let some people begin to ask God to show you and to teach you how to sit in Him and to truly rest. After uh, that song, they'll collect those, the baskets and, and we'll end it and we'll be done this morning. If you would, bow with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you so much for allowing us to be in your family. Father, to have the ability to walk into this vault full of precious jewels and powerful tools and to know that they're all intended for us, that they've been given to us. But also, Father, I pray that you'll help us to accept the challenge of being enlightened about these things. The life that you have for us is a trade-up. It's a light burden. It's an easy yoke. And most of us struggle under a weight that you don't want us to have to struggle under. And you're ready to take those burdens. Father, help us to choose to be spiritual and not worldly. Help us choose to sit instead of fighting battles that have already been won. Father, teach us what it means 
to trust you fully with everything. Father, I pray that uh, people will be intrigued about what, what Paul's written in this letter and that we'll, we'll spend some time reading Paul's words and familiarizing ourselves with, with what he's saying and, and what he wants us to understand because Jesus sent him to tell us these things. That's what being an apostle is all about. And you've preserved this, these lessons for us for over 2,000 years. Father, I pray that we'll be good students and that we'll learn it. But Father, I pray that we won't just learn it with our heads, but that it will really enlighten our hearts and it will come out in the way that we live. Uh, Father, we live in a society that doesn't understand how to be unburdened. Most people just struggle under crushing weight of things they cannot control. But you've called us to be different. And Father, I pray that you'll help us to begin that journey and to start learning together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.